My guest this month is Dr. David Pullmutter. He is a legend in the field of nutritional medicine. He's a board certified neurologist and serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. He is six times New York Times best-selling author. In fact, you, like me, may have read one of his books, including Grain Brain or perhaps Brain Maker. But I'm here to talk with him about his latest book, Drop Acid. Not LSD, but uric acid and its pivotal role in your health and the metabolic diseases that are devastating humanity and why we should all become aware of our own uric acid level and how and why to lower it. So, Dr. David Perlmutter, welcome to our podcast. Well, Patrick, let me uh, first express my gratitude that we have this time together. I, I so enjoyed uh, meeting with you for the time we had together uh, back in London uh, in uh, June of, of this past year. And uh, I also want to say, and I think it should be said on your podcast, that I commend you for your efforts and uh, the work that you're doing. It's so incredibly important um, that people hear the other side of the story as it relates to, to Alzheimer's, for example. And I know that's certainly a, a topic that we will raise today. But again, thank you for having me today. Well, it's a pleasure. And I know that you live in Florida and I know that your house was hit hard by this uh, this hurricane recently. So I'm I know that you're giving us your time in the middle of uh, massive upheaval and builders. So thank you for that. Yes, I, I, it's true. And I will say that, you know, uh, several things. Uh, first, into each life, some rain must fall. Number one. Number two. Um, there are very important lessons lessons to be gleaned from uh, an event like this where your home is basically devastated. And first, you know, I think the most important thing that my wife and I uh, appreciated was how, on the scale of things, how little the importance is of the things that you own, you know, the objects that you, uh, the material things. After the hurricane, we looked in at each other and just smiled. We were fine, you know, our, our home was devastated. And as we move forward over time, all of our children's bedrooms were ending, you know, are now on the street uh, being carted away and our kids are fine and we're fine. And that's really what matters at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, that's for sure. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Uh, we're going to have a conversation about something nobody knows they need to know about, uric acid. And for those who have heard of this chemical found in the blood, excreted in the urine, it's synonymous with gout. But you show clear evidence that uric acid is actually an indicator of many more diseases. Which ones and why? Well, first, let me backtrack just a moment and indicate that <clears throat> we have a tendency in, in medicine to sort of pigeonhole ideas. Uh, as we did with uric acid, you know, uh, until quite recently, uric acid was looked upon as being an important mechanistic player <clears throat> in uh, obviously gout and kidney stones. But pretty much, you know, even in my medical education many years ago, decades ago, uh, we we would spend a day learning about uric acid and, and I guess importantly, how to treat how to treat elevation of uric acid as it related to uh, gout and kidney stones. But you know, I think more recently, we really begin to uh, appreciate how so many things uh, have much more encompassing roles to play in human physiology and pathology. 
and so it is with uric acid. And we've learned that uric acid is, as you mentioned, playing such a fundamental role uh, in terms of maintaining a normal uh, metabolism or a state of metabolism, or when it's elevated, elevated contributing uh, to problems with our metabolic health. And when I say metabolic health, we're talking about, you know, basically how our cells use energy and the things that our cells do in terms of their functionality. And when we overview metabolic health, we realize that those disease processes that are predicated on problems with our metabolism are among the most pervasive diseases on our planet. The chronic degenerative conditions like uh, the coronary artery disease issues, uh, cardiovascular disease in general, uh, Alzheimer's disease, for example, um, diabetes, obesity, et cetera. These are all uh, considered metabolic issues and according to the World Health Organization, represent the number one causes of death on our planet. And I, I've been making that statement for you know many years now, and I think it's even uh, more uh, poignant now when people tend to focus on infectious diseases vis-a-vis -vis COVID uh, being a global pandemic. And still, even today, the number one causes of death are the chronic degenerative conditions, not COVID, not an infectious disease. And these chronic degenerative conditions, which are metabolic in their origin, for which uric acid elevation is playing a role, most importantly for our discussion today, are situations uh, that are a consequence of our day-to-day -day lifestyle choices, which means that while there may or may not be meaningful treatments for each and every one of these, uh, the, the important role of disease prevention uh, is really something we should focus on. And now we have a new tool in the toolbox, and that is to help reduce our risk of these chronic degenerative conditions. Again, the number one causes of death on our planet. We have a new tool in the toolbox, and that is keeping our uric acid where it needs to be. We know that we've got to keep our blood sugar in check. We know we've got to keep our body mass index where it needs to be, our body weight uh, in relation to our height. And we know certainly that our blood sugar is playing a fundamental role in predisposing us to these diseases. But now we have a new tool in the toolbox, and that is controlling our uric acid. Now, most animals can break down uric acid. Why can't we? Well, that's, that's a very good point. Most mammals specifically have the ability, have enzymes in their physiology called the uricase enzymes, as you would expect, that breaks down uric acid. Uh, we do not. And it's, I think, a very fascinating story why we humans lack function of the uricase enzymes because it was, uh, has always been something that was good for us to actually accumulate uric acid. And it's a, it's a very colorful and interesting story that dates back somewhere between 18 and 14 million years ago, when uh, in the time, uh, the middle Miocene period during uh, a time when our uh, ancestors uh, are, uh, were under a time of great uh, environmental stress. Uh, these are our primate ancestors under a great deal of environmental stress over several million years when 
uh, the world became cooler and their food availability declined. So there was a very powerful selection process uh, allowing some to survive and, and others would perish. And that selection process favored our ancestors, our primate ancestors, who were able to do several important things in their physiology. Number one, they were able to reduce their uh, energy expenditure during a time of food scarcity. That would be a plus. Number two, they were able to make and store more body fat. Number three, they were able to increase their production of blood sugar in their bodies to help power their brain so they could figure out a way to find food. And number four, and there are actually several others, but the fourth for our discussion is they were able to slightly increase their blood pressure. And that turns out to be a very uh, favorable survival mechanism during times of water scarcity. When you, know, when you don't find water, you don't have enough blood pressure to send blood to your heart and your kidneys and throughout your body, you will perish uh, in comparison to some uh, of your uh, compatriots who happen to have a slight elevation of their blood pressure and I'm certainly not saying high blood pressure, but just a little elevation in comparison to the rest of, of the population, uh, it's a survival advantage. And as it turns out, when these individuals lost the uricase function such that they could not break down uric acid, their uric acid levels increased. And now that we understand what uric acid elevation does in our physiology, we understand why it was for our ancestors 14 to 18 million years ago, a, an advantage. Why? It caused them to be a little bit fatter. It caused them to reduce their energy expenditure so they preserve their energy, their fat. It caused them to raise their blood sugar so that they could uh, Im improve their functionality or preserve the functionality of their brains and raise their blood uh, pressure as well as a hedge against or a superpower, if you will, uh, during times of water scarcity. So that was a powerful survival mechanism. And as such, it became the norm. We inherited that uricase deficiency or absence of uricase uh, enzyme to break down uric acid. And as such, human uric acid levels are four to five times higher than that of various other mammals. Uh, and these days, it could still be considered a survival advantage if we had no food and if we had no water or limited amounts of those uh, components of our existence. But the reality is what we're seeing now is, a, is this confrontation between what we call environment and evolution. Let me explain. Our environment is one that uh, has abundance of calories, abundance of food and abundance of water. And beyond that is a life pretty much in comparison to our ancestors, which is pretty sedentary. We're not really hunting and gathering all day long. And for many people, there's a lot of sitting on, on their uh, chairs uh, all day long and la really lack of, of energy expenditure. So we are, we have the physiology, we have the genetics that we've inherited through what I've just explained, it's 14 to 18 million years of evolution. We have the genetics that wants to be very parsimonious as it was, uh, very uh, stingy with our calories, 
uh, keeping every calorie sacred, storing as much fat as possible when calories are, are found, and allowing our blood pressure to go up as a survival mechanism. And that runs uh, headfirst into our environment that gives us calories and, and allows us to be sedentary. And we have plenty of water in most parts of the world. So it's this, con uh, this confrontation between our evolutionary physiology wanting to make us fatter, raise our blood pressure, raise our blood sugar, uh, and confronting uh, that physiology with our modern world where calories are abundant. So this is survival and of the fattest. It really is survival yeah. of the fattest, which today is not, not working for us anymore. And it's quite recent, very recent in our evolution. I mean, the, the availability of these highly pro ultra processed foods uh, manufactured foods, if you will, is something that we humans have experienced for 0.005% of the time we've been walking planet Earth. And it, it does not provide us anywhere enough time uh, to change and evolve our physiology. So what's happening is our bodies are doing their very best to help us <clears throat> survive by saving every calorie, by making as much fat as possible, uh, by raising our blood sugar in hopes of allowing us to, to survive for the upcoming winter, the upcoming time of food scarcity. The problem is we're, we're packing away the fat, raising our blood sugar, raising our blood uh, pressure for the winter that never comes. And again, this is called an evolutionary environmental mismatch. And as such, to get back to your original question, Patrick, this is part and parcel uh, what explains why the uric acid elevation that is so pervasive these days is so central to our metabolic dismay, our metabolic mayhem, uh, if you will, that I, as I indicated uh, during our introduction, is central to the you know, pervasive chronic degenerative conditions that are killing people around the world. So when you talk about metabolic uh, problems, metabolic syndrome is actually defined as a pattern of changes that drives most Western diseases. And um, should uric acid, I mean, what, are the, what is the definition of metabolic syndrome sort of clinically, and should uric acid be added to it? Well, uh, should uric acid be added to the list of metabolic syndrome? I, uh, that's an interesting question. I think we're probably years away from that happening, several years anyway, because what you and I are talking about today um, is not generally part of the medical gestalt, if you will, not yet, but it's getting there. Um, and, and I think it's going to take some time for elevation of uric acid to be included in along with uh, insulin resistance, hypertension, dyslipidemia, the other components of uh, the elevated uh, tri hypertriglyceridemia that make up the metabolic syndrome. Uh, it's going to take some time, but you know, I, I think that people who are listening to your podcast are really generally on on the leading edge, and they'll get this importance. They'll understand this importance. And you know, frankly, uh, this isn't that new. Uh, the first descriptions of elevation of uric acid being related to more than just kidney stones and gout began to appear in 1898. Um, uh, work of uh, Dr. Alexander Haig actually publishing a book 
demonstrated, or he in his thesis was that uric acid is playing a, a far more pervasive role in, in metabolic issues and other issues like uh, depression, cognitive decline, uh, headaches, for example, which he suffered from and improved by lowering his uric acid, uh, than was recognized at that time. Uh, that information became uh, essentially buried until about three decades ago. Now, uh, for example, uh, one paper that came out of, uh, a collaborative paper came out of Turkey and Japan way back in 2016, uh, was entitled uh, Uric Acid uh, in Metabolic Syndrome from Innocent Bystander to Central Player. Think about that. Uh, we've known that we, we've seen elevated uric acid in various components of the metabolic syndrome. We've seen it alongside the elevation of body mass index. We've seen it alongside hypertension and alongside uh, elevated blood sugar. And we always thought, well, isn't that interesting? It happens to be there. We got to keep, keep it in mind in case this or that patient develops gout. But what came to our attention back in 2016 was that it is not just an innocent bystander, but it is a central, and I'm using, I'm adding a word here, mechanistic player, meaning it doesn't just happen to be elevated, but it's causing to some degree the elevation of blood pressure, the elevation of body mass, the elevation of blood sugar. We now have teased apart these mechanisms whereby this uric acid in your blood is telling your body to prepare for winter. It's telling your body, raise your blood sugar. Nobody needs that these days. Raise your blood pressure, increase your storage of body fat, and reduce your burning of body fat so that you can have reserves of energy to survive. That's the signal. The uric acid elevation is an emergency alarm preparing your body for resource scarcity. So yeah, I mean, we've known that it's been elevated along with diabetes and obesity for an awful long time. But now we recognize that it's actually playing a causal role. Interesting, but beyond being simply interesting, wow, that really gives us an important new tool that we can leverage to help people with these issues. Now, if I go to my doctor and they check my uric acid level, they'll probably tell me that uh, anything below uh, seven milligram per deciliter is healthy. Uh, what is elevated uric acid? Hmm. Wonderful, um, wonderful question. Because understand, and it gets back to, uh, I think, a theme we've been developing today, and that is that the normal level of uric acid is defined as that level below which you will have a very low risk for gout or kidney stones. So those levels are only developed as it relates to gout and kidney stones, because once you're above around seven milligrams per deciliter, then there's a greater risk that uric acid will uh, form crystals uh, and, and you know, the, the level will be so high in your blood that it'll start to crystallize in places like uh, the joints, for example, that's gout or in the kidneys in the form of stones. But interestingly, we now know that these crystals can form in the lining arteries of your uh, lining of the arteries of your heart, in the prostate gland, various places in the body, you know, that really aren't in uh, the umbrella of gout, for example. But but having said that, again, the so-called normal range is one that is lower 
uh, than seven milligrams per deciliter. But it turns out that as it relates to risk for cardiovascular disease, that risk level begins at around 5.5 milligrams per deciliter. So we, we certainly want to, uh, especially for people who listen to your podcast, uh, your listeners don't want to be in the normal range. They want to be in the optimal range. They don't want to be just, you know, normal these days, which means average basically is not good enough. Uh, we want to be optimized and the optimal level of uh, uric acid is going to be 5.5 milligrams per deciliter, men, women, children, or lower. And uh, the nice thing is that when people visit their doctors and have a comprehensive blood panel, generally uric acid is included in that, of course, you know, in the context of gout, uh, but nonetheless, uh, people can call their doctors and say, by the way, last year when I had my comprehensive blood work, what was my uric acid level and learn, you know, where they are on this scale. And beyond that, uh, there is availability now for uh, home testing, just like you might uh, check your blood sugar at home uh, with a home monitor. You can do the same thing with uric acid. What drives uric acid up? That's a, a terrific question. And I would say that if you go on uh, any of the major clinics, uh, websites, uh, and look for information about uric acid, again, it's going to be presented in the context of gout. And the fallback recommendations are uh, to get uh, a diet, if your uric acid is elevated, that is lower in something called purines. I mean, that's been the go-to messaging for decades. It's what I was taught way back in medical school. It's still being taught today. Purines are the breakdown products of DNA and RNA that are found within the cells of the foods that we eat. High purine foods have a lot of cells, a lot of DNA and RNA. And these are things like organ meats, liver, kidney, pancreas, small fish like sardines, anchovies, uh, and you know even certain vegetables have a lot of purines. Uh, but we'll talk about why that isn't something we should necessarily avoid. And then alcohol as well tends to elevate uric acid. This has been, and unfortunately still remains, the messaging that people will receive from doctors as well as online visiting various respected clinics, uh, websites in terms of what you should do from a dietary perspective to help bring your uric acid levels down. The problem is that by far and away in our modern world, the, the major contributor to uric acid formation is not the purines in the diet. It is not the alcohol that people are consuming. It is a type of sugar that is incredibly uh, pervasive throughout uh, the, the developed world called fructose. Fructose, like alcohol, is directly metabolized into uric acid. That's the big uh, elephant in the room that, you know, at least here in America, doesn't seem to be part of the discussion. And, you know, there are various reasons uh, why that is, why, you know, popular websites don't want to talk about the fact that we need to limit our sugar consumption, that I was recently on a national television program talking about um, having revised one of my books and why I'm, I'm thinking that uh, sugar, I mentioned that sugar is such a big issue. And 
without any uh, res uh, reservation on a national television program. They said, yes, we reached out to the, the National Sugar Foundation and they said sugar's fine to eat. So the biggest player of all in our modern world is the incredible amount of fructose uh, that is being consumed uh, in the human diet. Fructose is 50% of table sugar, which is called sucrose. It's 50% glucose and 50% fructose. Fructose is the currency of energy utilization. You know, your blood sugar is what you utilize for energy. And fructose is the uh, currency of energy storage. Fructose, by its activation of uric acid, tells the body to make energy storage, also known as fat. So fructose is the signal and has been for tens of millions of years for the body to make and store fat. You know, we, ha we had Dr. Robert Lustig uh, on our podcast talking very much about fructose. And of course, uh, we switched largely from cane sugar, which is more glucose, to now this high fructose corn syrup. Uh, it appears to be uh, cheaper and sweeter, but it doesn't give you the same instant gratification that you've had enough sweets. So I think the food industry have learned that they can sell you more cans of cola if they sweeten it with fructose than if they sweetened it with glucose. Uh, and that's right. <clears throat> glucose uh, triggers satiety messaging in your brain uh, that you've eaten enough, stop eating. And fructose does not do that. Fructose tells you keep eating. And uh, indeed, uh, the, 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 the ability to derive fructose from corn was developed back in 1957 here uh, in America at uh, Oklahoma State University. And allowed uh, scientists to develop techniques for industry to make fructose sugar from a very, very cheap source, corn. And to this day here in America, uh, our USDA, United States Department of Agriculture, which is the organization involved in helping the economy, helping farmers grow as much corn and other staples as they can, uh, is basically denying the science that links fructose consumption to destroying our metabolic health. And as a matter of fact, uh, there's a five-year recommendation that the USDA makes, uh, and uh, the, the one that was uh, offered up two years ago, again, came out and said, uh, it's totally fine if 10% of your total daily calories comes from sugar. Can you imagine? There was not one scientist uh, informing this decision that said that that was a good idea. And yet, you know, in favor of a great uh, way that farmers could use their corn uh, to make sugar, that's what their recommendation was to the incredible detriment of human health. Think about that. So uh, I, along with another uh, medical doctor, uh, wrote an op-ed in a, a publication called MedPage Today, that was an open letter to President Biden calling attention to what the USDA was recommending and asking him if he would uh, consider addressing that. Well, we haven't heard anything yet. That was February of uh, 2021. Um, so I, I maybe will not hope for that much more moving forward, but you are correct. It's cheap, it's sweet, and it doesn't trigger satiety hormones or hormones that would tell your body uh, that it's time to stop eating. 
fructose tells your body just exactly the opposite. It says, keep eating to prepare for winter. It's telling your body to make and store fat uh, and raise your blood sugar. Uh, fructose is what bears are trying to consume uh, to store fat in order to get ready to hibernate. They're eating as many berries as they possibly can, full of fructose, and that's helping their bodies make body fat. Their entire physiology uh, in the, the summer and early fall is designed, is set up activating certain uh, metabolic pathways through their fructose consumption and uric acid to make and store fat and lock it up so that they can then hibernate for months at a time, burn their body fat and a survival mechanism. Most people that I know don't hibernate <clears throat> and therefore aren't going to need to pack away that uh, those pounds and pounds of fat uh, that are basically killing them uh, by eating a lot of fructose. And, uh, you know, in America, close to 70% of the foods in the grocery store have added sweetener. And as you well characterized, by and large, these are derivatives of high fructose. What does that mean? Lots of fructose. High fructose corn comes from corn syrup. Again, as you so well characterized, it's cheap and it's sweet. So fructose, of course, is a, a sort of naturally occurring sugar. And when we eat it in a whole food, we're getting fiber. The fiber not only slows down its release, but provided you do not have too much, uh, that fructose can feed the bacteria in the gut. So you don't necessarily get it all. Um, but I'm very interested in gorillas. You know, we've just been in uh, London Zoo where they feed gorillas vitamin C. Every day, gorillas have vitamin C supplements. And it reminds me of the, of the loss of the enzyme uricase uh, some, whatever, 15 million or so years ago. But before that, 60 million years ago, the apes lost the ability to make vitamin C. So again, they lost an enzyme, couldn't make vitamin C. Uh, all animals make use a lot of sugar, actually, to make vitamin C. And uh, we don't. So we're kind of very dependent on those foods. And of course, quite a lot of these primates are, are quite fat as well. Is there a link between vitamin C and uric acid? Well, there is. And uh, it, uh, you quite well characterize the, uh, you know, this loss of, uh, of the ability there, you know, basically four enzymes involved in vitamin C uh, synthesis. And we uh, as well have lost one of those. And, um, you know, many species uh, and even uh, primates, guinea pigs, well, some bats uh, have lost this uh, capacity to make vitamin C. Now, let me just uh, try to work that into our uric acid conversation because vitamin C is important for a couple of reasons uh, that are relevant for our discussion today. Number one, vitamin C dramatically increases our ability to excrete uric acid. In the context of survival, we don't want to do that. We don't want to excrete uric acid because when we do, uh, then we don't get that superpower of making more body fat, et cetera. So in that regard, uh, it is it, something that was beneficial for us uh, to not be able to manufacture vitamin C and therefore make the body fat and therefore survive as it was with uh, the other primates that we talked about. So. Beyond that, though, what is what does vitamin C do? Why does everybody uh, like to take it? Well, you know, certainly we know that vitamin C is fundamental for 
um, the formation of collagen, a con an important connective tissue. Yes, we get that. But in addition, the reason I think most people take vitamin C is because it is a so-called antioxidant. Vitamin C preserves how our energy producers in our cells called the mitochondria, how they are able to make energy. But uric acid actually threatens the ability of our mitochondria to make energy. And in the time of energy scarcity, i.e. food scarcity, that was an advantage. By turning down how the mitochondria worked, less energy would be consumed and you might survive. Vitamin C, because it's an antioxidant, helps the mitochondria work, which you think these days is a great thing, and I agree. But uh, in the context of uh, energy utilization during times of food scarcity, in other words, in our past, that might not necessarily uh, be an advantage. So I think we're beginning to understand in the context of evolution, uh, uh, new perspectives on, on vitamin C. Am I in favor of vitamin C supplementation? Uh, you bet. Um, do I take vitamin C myself, 500 milligrams to 1,000 milligrams every single day? Uh, you bet. And so I think you know the notion that we can't really synthesize vitamin C and that it's important in our diets and or and or in, as a supplement, I think makes sense these days. So sometimes it's said that if you take a lot of vitamin C, you will excrete more uric acid. You know, and that's, that's correct. Of, and that's that's sort of considered a bad thing. You know, a sort of and the kind of adverse effect of the vitamin C, but actually it's a benefit. Elevation of uric acid is incredibly pervasive. Now, the average uric acid here in America is uh, 6.0, and that's up from where it was in the 1920s, which was about 3.5. And it has gone up in lockstep, by the way, with our consumption of sugar. Uh, so, uh, you know, for eternity, uh, our uric acid levels would reflect directly uh, our consumption of various foods. Yes, purines for one thing, but certainly uh, more, much more recently, our consumption of uh, fruit sugar or fructose. So it was, it was kept kind of in a nice balance uh, over, you know, during the millions of years of our evolution based upon food availability and really served as a signal, uh, giving us a sense as to what's going on in the environment that uh, you know, elevation of uric acid would tell us what. It would tell us that it's late summer, early fall, because now we are consuming ripened fruit. And that made sense because pretty soon comes winter. And if we were consuming the ripened fruit in the late summer, and ripened, what is ripening? Ripened means that the starch in the fruit, which doesn't taste good, has been converted as the fruit ripens into sugar, which tastes great right? We all love sugar. Why do we have a sweet tooth? Because it tells us gravitate towards ripened fruit as a survival mechanism. That's why we have a sweet tooth. Everyone on the planet likes sweet foods. No one can deny it in reality. I mean, we certainly can control ourselves mostly, but everybody would like sweet. We know that it, it appeals to us as a survival mechanism. But the fact that, you know, that's when the fruit becomes ripe it gears us to prepare for winter. Ripened fruit, higher levels of fructose, raises uric acid, store body fat, and lo and behold, you survive. But now, you know, we're consuming fructose, whether it's ripened fruit or soda or whatever it is, 
365 days a year for the winter that never actually comes. So uh, again, you know, we're, we're headbutting against this uh, mismatch between our evolution, our genes, our physiology, and our lifestyles and what we choose to eat. But the vitamin C will it may raise your uric acid in the urine, but it's going to lower it in your bloodstream, which That's is right. a good, good thing. That's right. You're going to urinate yeah. out more. Yeah, uh, we're getting acid. And and you know the interventional trials make that very clear. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are other uh, nutritional approaches that we can take. Uh, you know, we've talked about maybe the things to think about avoiding, but there are actually things that we might add to the diet, both food and supplements, that will aid in our quest to reduce our uric acid, which is so very important. You know, hopefully we'll have time to talk about what elevation of uric acid, uh, what the, the literature is talking about in terms of how it translates in terms of disease. But one fundamental enzyme that is involved in how we go from alcohol and purines and fructose in finally into uric acid is called xanthine oxidase. That's not critical that your listeners know that, but mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it, call it what you want. There is an enzyme, it's called xanthine oxidase, and that has to function in order to make uric acid. So uh, the pharmaceutical industry in their brilliance decades ago developed a, a drug, actually several drugs, that can turn that enzyme off and therefore might be valuable in the treatment of people with gout or uric acid kidney stones. And it works great. It's called allopurinol. Here's another one that's less popular called febuxostat. But allopurinol turns off the enzyme in your physiology that makes uric acid. You know, if you're a person who has frequent gout att attacks, that must be horribly painful. This drug works wonders. But it turns out, gratefully, that there are components of our foods that can target that enzyme and turn it off and are associated with lowering uric acid. Uh, some of the cruciferous vegetables, uh, broccoli, kale, um, even uh, red onions is very powerful in terms of its ability to turn off that enzyme. It acts very much like the gout drug by targeting xanthine oxidase. We know that tart cherry has been demonstrated in interventional trials to reduce uric acid, more so in women than in men. But you ask the question then, well, what is it in these foods? There are a series of what we call bioflavonoids uh, that tend to inhibit the function of that enzyme. One of them that you're probably hearing a lot about lately is something called quercetin. The quercetin does a, a lot of, uh, and I'll spell it for your listeners, Q-U-E-R-C-E-T-I-N, quercetin. Uh, quercetin is available at health food stores and it directly targets this enzyme and works almost uh, uh, with the same efficacy as the drug allopurinol. Can you imagine? And uh, what, study, uh, what sort of dose? We use quercetin 500 milligrams. 500 study, milligrams, yeah, yeah. Appearing in, uh, perfect for our talk today, the British mm. Journal of Nutrition back in 2000 and oh, 15, uh, took 22 uh, men uh, who had borderline elevation of their uric acid. They took 500 milligrams of quercetin daily. And in four weeks, their uric acid levels were down by 8%. That's just in four weeks. That's a major, major improvement. Uh, quercetin is found in various types of foods uh, that I've mentioned. Uh, but again, it can be taken as a nutritional supplement. Another one is called luteolin. 
L-U-T-E-O-L-I-N, 100 milligrams per day, also targets that enzyme, also is associated with lowering of the uric acid. So now you're not making as much uric acid. You add in the vitamin C, 500 milligrams per day, and you begin to excrete whatever uric acid is left behind, and you're well on your way to lowering your uric acid and better metabolism and really improving your health destiny as it relates to metabolic issues. Now, my wife, Gabby, will be very pleased to hear this because she, she loves anchovies. Not all the time. And um, we, we heard earlier some of these, and you mentioned it was the small fish, sardines and anchovies that were very high in purines. But we're learning now how to eliminate uric acid, how to prevent its ability to do harm with quercetin, for example, red onions, cruciferous vegetables, uh, and so on. So just, just on the sort of diet side, because obviously pluses and minuses. On the one hand, we want oily fish. They're high in omega-3, but we don't want too many purines. You know, what's, what's the balance? What do you do in relation to fish, excellent, alcohol? Excellent and and uh, again, uh, I think the purine part of the story is far less uh, influential in terms of uric acid in comparison to the fructose part of the story. Mm -hmm. I, love, uh, I love anchovies myself. I mean, when I at a restaurant order a Caesar salad, I have them double up on the anchovies. I love them. And if the, the person next to me doesn't want his or her anchovies, I take them off their plate. Uh, but it's really uh, a question of how often you do that and how much do you consume and what is, you got to know your uric acid level. And much as a diabetic might have a dessert once in a while because it does or does not affect their blood sugar, you got to know this. And, uh, and my blood uric acid level is around 4.5, 4.6. I have a, uh, right here at my desk right now, I'm holding in my hand, my uric acid meter, my last, last level is 4.7. So I'm feeling good that whatever I'm doing from a diet and lifestyle perspective is keeping my uric acid where it needs to be. I, I think your point is so well taken that there's great health value in things like sardines and mackerel and small fish, et cetera. But uh, it, it quantity becomes an issue. And uh, you know, the, uh, a big source would be organ meats. I mentioned it earlier, like liver. You know, liver has been traditionally a food that gout sufferers were told to strictly avoid, but I don't know that that's you know, necessary or fully necessary all the time if the serving size is controlled and if you're monitoring your uric acid. Again, today it's about the sugar, that's job one. If people are dramatically reducing their consumption of fructose, I believe you'll see a significant improvement of, of, their ur of uric acid Add to that the quercetin, the luteolin, the vitamin C that we described. And I think that this opens the door to having reasonable amounts of those small fish, perhaps organ meats, if that's your preference, it's not mine, um, for reasons that I just never liked liver. I couldn't stand it, but um, you know, that's probably a genetic thing of my taste receptors. But that said, uh, it, it's all about knowing how you respond. You know. Um, we have the ability, for example, to measure our blood sugar in real time using what's called a yeah. continuous glucose monitor. You can look on your smartphone any moment now and, and know what your blood sugar is doing in response to your breakfast, lunch, dinner, the exercise you get, how you slept last night. And while I think it, it's probably challenging to think you're gonna be checking your blood uric acid level that frequently, 
you can begin to get a sense as to what your diet is doing to your uric acid and, and understanding how you as an individual respond and therefore cultivate a program that works for you. And what about alcohol? Uh, how much is too much? And are there certain forms of alcohol? We always used to hear about port being associated with gout. Are there certain forms of alcohol that will raise uric acid more? That's right. And why would port raise uric acid more than other forms of wine? Uh, it, port is extremely sweet. There you go. It's got lots of sugar and it does have alcohol. Uh, and as it relates then to the types of alcohol, um, the best choice would be wine, especially red wine. Uh, and it turns out that wine consumption in women is actually associated with a slight decrease of uric acid. In men, it's pretty neutral. Hard liquor is associated with an increase in uric acid in both men and women. Uh, and beer tends to be the worst player of all, both in men and women. Uh, raises uric acid quite dramatically because beer does contain alcohol, but it's also very, very rich in purines. Why? Because it's made from brewer's yeast. Yeast is hypercellular, has a lot of genetic uh, nucleic acids that then enter the purine pool and contribute to elevation of uric acid, which tells the body to make fat. So now we fully understand where the beer belly is coming from. It's not from the calories. So now, you know, what happens? Because people are getting beer belly from drinking a lot of beer, they develop light beer. And right on the, uh, on the label, they show, oh, it only has whatever, 110 calories as opposed to higher levels of cal caloric count in other forms of beer. It isn't, it isn't the calorie count. It's the alcohol and the purines that turn on the production of uric acid. Now, in Japan, for example, they've understood this for quite some time. And in Japan, you can buy in the grocery store, uh, you can buy purine free beer because they, they understand this. As I mentioned earlier, I mentioned a study that came out of Japan back in 2016, where uric acid was had gone from being an innocent bystander to a central player. They get this. Uh, many places are, around the world understand and are leveraging this information about uric acid to bring about better health in their population. Um, you know, as you know, I recently visited England and I am, uh, you know, I live in America and I, I, what I saw in England is pretty much in lockstep with what goes on here and pretty much in the Western world, that there is an awful lot of sugar consumption and there's an awful lot of metabolic a disease. Uh, you know, it's estimated by 2030. And that's in the distant future. Well, no, it's not. It's in uh, eight years uh, that a half, one half of American adults will be not just overweight, but obese. Half of American adults in 2030, that's eight years from now, will be obese. Right now, it's a third. 72% of American adults right now are obese or overweight. And sugar, as I'm sure Dr. Lustig made very clear, uh, is, is directly uh, in the crosshairs of what's responsible. Now, what are gout bacteria? Uh, what's the link between uric acid and gut bacteria? And do probiotics also help to lower uric acid? Several good questions there. Uh, I think we're just beginning to tease apart 
um, what is this relationship between elevation of uric acid and the uh, diversity and quantity of our gut bacteria. It is noted <clears throat> that there is almost a fingerprint identification of the changes in the gut bacteria that are seen in patients with gout. Now, is the bacteria raising the uric acid? Likely. Is the uric acid changing the gut bacteria? likely as well. Now, uh, that said, could probiotics be effective? My sense is yes, and I'll tell you why that was my response, because there's now research showing that when you swap the gut bacteria of gout sufferers with the gut bacteria of somebody without gout, that their frequency of gout attacks goes down dramatically. And what I'm talking about is an intervention that's called a fecal microbial transplant. And that is what it is. It means uh, basically taking hel a healthy individual, harvesting some of their fecal material and instilling it into the colon of the individual with gout. When that is done, the number uh, the frequency of gout attacks goes down quite dramatically. And that's a pretty profound uh, indication that the gut bacteria are indeed playing a role. Other things that we recognize uh, can relate to this uh, interaction between gout, rather between elevation of uric acid and the gut bacteria, include the idea that our gut bacteria are sensitive to uh, the amount of inflammation in the body that when uh, elevate when inflammation is elevated it changes not only the milieu the characterization of the gut bacteria but also changes their functionality elevation of uric acid raises the production in the body of these inflammatory chemicals and that is something that is sensed throughout the body including in the gut and certainly in the brain as well so Elevation of the production of these inflammatory chemicals is one of the things that elevation of uric acid does, and that is something that has body-wide implications. Now, does uric acid switch off autophagy? Uh, my listeners, we've spoken often about a ketogenic diet or a fasting-mimicking diet. Is this a good way to go to lower uric acid? Indeed, it does. And I'll relate back to our earlier discussion of the bear. The bear preparing for hibernation is in a situation in which he or she is trying to um, store as much tissue as possible. Now, let me break this down a little bit, but uh, I'll connect a few dots. In the breakdown of fructose, its metabolism, something called AMP uh, is created. ATP, the energy currency, is ultimately broken down to AMP, adenosine monophosphate, and that can be metabolized in either of two pathways. It can be metabolized through something called AMPK or AMPD. I know it sounds complicated, but I'll, I'll, I'll work through it. Now, if it's metabolized through AMP kinase, what happens in the human body when we light up AMP kinase is we don't store fat, we burn fat, 
we don't make blood sugar as much through what's called gluconeogenesis. We reduce our production of blood sugar and it helps us activate something called autophagy, whereby we are breaking down defective parts of cells. And that's a good thing. That's what happens when we activate AMPK. Pretty much good things. It's what we want to do. We want to target our AMPK and keep it active. Now, three things I'll mention activate AMPK, things that can help us. Uh, number one, by far and away, is exercise. That's why we like to exercise because we're lighting up AMPK, reducing our formation of body fat, burning fat for energy, reducing the production of, of blood sugar and aiding with autophagy. Quercetin, I mentioned it earlier in the context of uric acid, but quercetin uniquely and specifically targets AMP kinase, another reason to take uh, quercetin. The third thing I'll just mention because I think it might light a, 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 an idea in many of your listeners' minds is a drug called metformin. Metformin is perhaps the most commonly prescribed diabetes drug uh, on the planet. And how does it work? It targets AMP kinase. It tells the body, don't make any more blood sugar. We've got enough. So it shuts down the liver's production of, sh of sugar. So we want to do everything we can to let AMP kinase be active uh, in terms of how AMP is metabolized in the human body. Well, it turns out that AMPK has an evil twin. And the evil twin <laughs> is called AMP deaminase. And what AMP deaminase does is just the opposite of AMP kinase. It causes the body to make more fat. It causes the body to store that fat. It causes the body to turn on the production of glucose through what we call gluconeogenesis in the liver. So let me get back to our bear uh, example. When the bear is foraging for berries, eating a lot of fructose, AMPD is activated, making fat, storing fat, making blood sugar, preparing for hibernation. We don't want that in general, uh, and, but that's what's going on. And then when the bear is hibernating, it's burning its fat, it changes, it shifts its physiology over to AMPK. It's now going to involve itself in burning that fat for energy, in using, uh, not making increased blood sugar, et cetera. So this is, uh, you know, relates back to your question then about autophagy and the, what is called the mTOR pathway. And we really want to do our best to keep autophagy active, uh, to keep our blood sugars where they need to be, uh, and keep ourselves lit up as it relates to using the AMPK part of the flow chart, not AMPD. Well, what does uric acid do? Uric acid shuts down AMPK and tells the body, no, you're going to metabolize your fructose and purines through, through AMP deaminase, the pathway of more fat production, reducing your energy expenditure, turning off your mitochondrial function so that you save energy uh, and making more blood sugar. Uh, that's, what we, that's what uric acid does as a survival mechanism during times of food scarcity or hibernation, as it, in the case of the bear. We don't want that. We want to be pretty much involving ourselves in AMPK as much as possible and not using the other side of that pathway, 
uh, whereby autophagy is shut down. Now, to get back to your question, whereby we're using fat for energy, we're not making blood sugar. And that's the real nuts and bolts now that we've had this deep dive in terms of one important mechanism, hopefully we have time for one more, of how uric acid does its best to keep us alive, I could have said does its dirty work. Because whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, elevation of uric acid is in the context of our environment. Are we living in an environment that has no food and we need uric acid to help us survive, in which case it's a good thing, or in the context of food abundance and calorie abundance, are pretty much our modern world in which elevation of uric acid is a bad thing. Now, you're a neurologist, and one of my pet areas, having started my career as a psychologist, is brain health. What does too much uric acid do to your brain? Great. You've got a lot of great questions. And uh, the wide scope view would say that the underlying mechanism for neurodegenerative conditions, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Huntington's, multiple sclerosis, is a process called inflammation. Alzheimer's is a prototypic inflammatory disease like coronary artery disease, like diabetes, obesity, and certain forms of cancer. It's the excessive action of inflammation over a long term. Uric acid increases inflammation in the human body alone. Just, I mean, alone, if we consider that, we've got plenty of uh, fodder for understanding why uric acid would therefore be related to dramatic increased risk for neurodegenerative conditions through the inflammation mechanism alone. We know though that uric acid raises blood sugar, insulin resistance. The brain in no way likes that. Insulin resistance is central to the development of Alzheimer's disease. Um, insulin we need, we need great functionality of insulin. Insulin not just for keeping uh, the brain uh, with the ability to use glucose as a fuel, but insulin in the brain acts as what we call a trophic hormone. In other words, it's loving and nurturing to the neurons. We need uh, insulin. We always associate it with controlling sugar. Well, it does a heck of a lot more. It nurtures the neurons. It allows them to grow. It allows them to connect. It allows them to communicate. So that's what insulin does in the brain. Elevation of uric acid threatens the function of insulin in the brain. So would we then expect individuals with elevation of uric acid to have greater risk for cognitive issues? We would expect, I would expect that. If we turn to the Annals of Rheumatic Diseases 2018, a wonderful study appeared that looked at 1,600 individuals and followed these individuals for 12 years. And during that 12 year period of time, 1,600 people, big study. They had evaluation of their how their brains were working about every two years. Every two years, the subject would come back and they would have testing in terms of executive function, of memory, et cetera. How's the brain working? This went on for, for 12 years. Many of these individuals, in addition, had MRI scans done periodically. And the only other thing that was included was at the beginning of this evaluation, they checked their uric acid. And they stratified the group into four levels of uric acid from lowest, second lowest, uh, second highest, and highest. So we had the lowest and the highest. And what they found was those 
who had the highest level of uric acid. Now, 12 years later, imagine doing a study for 12 years. Those with the highest level of uric acid had an 80% increased risk of becoming demented, a 55% increased risk of developing specifically Alzheimer's disease, and a 166% increased risk of developing what is called vascular or mixed dementia. Now, that's a powerful relationship that was determined between elevation of uric acid and risk for the development of these various forms of cognitive decline. Uh, you know, that's an association. It's, it's uh, a correlation, if you will, between high uric acid and the development of these problems. Not saying that the uric acid necessarily was causative, correlative, not causative. We understand why it very well could be causative through the mechanisms that you and I have already discussed today. But, you know, uh, other studies have demonstrated uh, similar findings. One study that appeared in uh, uh, arthritis and rheumatism in 2009 was an eight-year study and looked at uh, 90,000 individuals, 42,000 men, 48,000 women, and again, stratified them based upon their uric acid levels at the beginning of the study. And what they found was that the highest level of uric acid, those individuals were at uh, increased risk for what is called all-cause mortality, meaning dying from anything whatsoever, that risk was increased by 16%. Risk for death from cardiovascular disease, heart disease, et cetera, was 39%, almost 40% increased in the high uric acid. And risk for death from a, a blockage of an artery in the brain was increased by 35% in looking at the high uric acid level group. So these things become um, quite important. Uh, especially in a time where we don't have an answer for people who are at great risk or already are beginning to become cognitively impaired or becoming demented. Those individuals with a mild cognitive impairment, for example, who are already showing evidence, clinical evidence of cognitive decline, we have nothing much to offer them. You know, uh, interestingly, um, five years ago in the, in the archives of neurology was published a guide for clinicians. In other words, telling me as a neurologist, what is evidence-based that I can use to treat a patient who now has mild cognitive impairment to help reduce their rate of developing full-blown Alzheimer's? What can I do right now when I have a patient in my office? What's the only evidence-based therapy I can offer? They looked at a a wide number of various drug interventions, et cetera. And they, come up, they came up with only one validated, scientifically proven intervention that I can say to this patient, if we use this, we, it will slow your rate of cognitive decline. The intervention was exercise, not a drug. <laughs> and it was, that's what the American uh, Academy of Neurology said to us. That's the only validated intervention that I can offer to a patient, increase your exercise. So what I what I'm I'm going for here is simply the fact that we don't have a pill. We yeah. have no uh, interaction right now on you know lowering beta amyloid or cholinesterase inhibitor, whatever it may be. We've got nothing. That prescription pad is blank. When your 
or, or I, when someone comes to see a neurologist and says, I need a pill because I have now been diagnosed with MCI. I'm on my way to Alzheimer's. Please write me a prescription. Help me, doctor. There's nothing to write for that patient. Now, so, Dave, David, we've come to the end of our time on this podcast. And I want to oh, unfortunately, I'm it, only a quarter done. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. And I want to say that uh, we had uh, last week the brilliant masterclass at Food for the Brain, the charity. And of course, we've been talking about Food for the Brain. And Dr. David Perlmutter was one of eight experts there that looked at B vitamins and homocysteine and omega-3 and exercise, both physical and cognitive exercise and the gut and uh, sugar. Uh, Dr. Robert Lustig uh, was there as well and antioxidants and all the other factors, because uh, I want to say that you've spent a lifetime educating people. And obviously, when we start to say these things, it's always against the, you know, the grain of, of, of sort of conventional medicine. So it takes a lot of guts. It takes a lot of intelligence, a lot of perseverance. Your books are amazing. Uh, there are so many of them. Uh, I know what that feels like. You know, we've got brain wash, brain maker, brain grain, and the latest drop acid. Obviously, people can you know buy it in the bookstore. They can buy it on Amazon. Do you have a particular website you'd like people to go to to get your absolutely essential book to read drop acid? Well, I would say that since this is an international um, podcast that Amazon has carried my books globally and they're in 34 languages. So yeah. I would say anyone yeah. should just, you know, sign on to their local Amazon and, and it, boy, yeah, so, it. So get the book drop acid. Um, David, thank you immensely for sharing your wisdom. We all now know that we need to keep an eye on our uric acid level, do things that bring it down. And we've been given a lot of great clues. So David, thank you very, very much. Patrick, my pleasure. And uh, again, kudos for all that you're doing. Uh, I so enjoyed spending time with you and uh, keep up the very, very great work. Thank you.